Please open with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at a section of chapter 8, starting in verse 12. <clears throat> I know we're going backwards a little bit from where Carl was yesterday, but forgive me for that. There's an important section of Scripture that I would want to open up for us all. Most of you are looking at the screen and going, uh, cryotic moment. What? Well, he's doing it again. All of these words. First German, now English. A cryotic moment. Very simply, it's a significant moment of time. A significant moment of time. A moment that changes the course of events, the course of history, the course of a life. Uh, some cryotic events in history. Julius Caesar when he crossed the Rubicon with his army, cried Alia Yakta Est, the die is cast, forever changing the Roman Republic. Thomas Edison, harnessing electricity in a way that was never harnessed before, a cryotic moment. Perhaps some of you, Alexander Graham Bell, you know, when he first said through the telephone, Watson, come here, I want to see you. A cryotic moment that changed our way of communication forever. Uh, maybe the dropping of the atomic bomb, entering into a new age, an atomic age. Or perhaps uh, most of us, most recently, the chaotic moment that changed the course of our lives was 9-11. Uh, life never, never to be that way again, whatever that way is. We have chaotic moments in our lives too. Some sad. You know, the, the, the last breath of a loved one or spouse changes your life forever. Some, some happy when you stand before God and say, I do, changes your life forever. Those teenagers who are going through driver's ed, when you get that little driver's license, I remember when I received it, the lamination was still hot. <laughs> I thought, oh, this is going to change my life forever. But perhaps the moment that we can all point to, the, the significant change in our life that we're, we're never the same is when you kneel before the Lord and say, I can't do this. I can't be my own Savior. I need you. It changes your life forever. Cratic moment. But we're at a cratic moment in Jesus' life, a significant moment in time that defines who he is. Look with me at verse 12 through 20. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going. You have no idea where I came from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do not do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My witness, my other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked, 
Where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. Here in chapter 8 and in the rest of the chapter, Jesus makes his boldest defense for who he is yet in John. And I'd like us to look specifically at verse 12 in chapter 8 and break it down a little bit because it's in many ways a turning point in the Gospel of John, a chaotic moment because more plainly and more fervently than ever before, what Jesus is doing is he's making his divine claim. He is claiming to be God in the plainest sense of the word. Many times the reason we recommend people that are spiritually inquisitive, we recommend the Gospel of John to them. Read through the Gospel of John and then let's have a discussion. Many times why we do that is because the Gospel of John over and over and over again puts forth who Jesus is in plain terms. Over and over and over again. Jesus claiming to be divine, claiming to be God himself, God incarnate. And we see it here in two ways in verse 12. Verse 12, Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. This is the second of the I am statements in John. Many of you already know this. There are seven. John has organized his gospel around seven I am statements as well as seven miracles. And he does this, as chapter 20 tells us, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, we may have life. That's the purpose of this book that we go back to again and again. This book is written with a distinct purpose. And so these seven miracles, these seven I am statements, are there so that we might believe who Jesus really is, and by believing have life eternal. So how does Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, challenge us to believe? That's the question. Well, we don't really hear it in English, but, but certainly the Jews, when they were hearing what Jesus was saying, they got it. They, the Greek construction there, and I won't go into any detail, because I don't think it's helpful to spout a lot of Greek from the pulpit, But the Greek construction there, ego eimi, is a unique construction. It's the same words used when God was telling Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3 the name by which he was to go and tell his people. Because Moses said, "Who, who should I tell them? If you're telling me to go do all this, who should I tell them is sending me? And God says through the burning bush, tell them, I am is sending you. So when Jesus is saying, I am, throughout John, when Jesus is saying here, I am the light of the world, he's using God's name. He's proclaiming very, very clearly to the Jewish ear, he is claiming to be God. That's the name God uses for himself. The name that John Piper says communicates the inexhaustible, ever-present, unchanging, eternal nature of God. And Jesus is standing there saying, I am he. 
In fact, Jesus bookends his his dispute in this whole chapter by saying the same thing. If you want to glance over at verse 56 of chapter 8, they've been talking about the father issue here. (laughs) Who's your father? Where's your father? You know, Abraham's our father. You're not our father. Going over and over in chapter 8, and it finally gets to the end, and Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And then the Jews say, hold it, you're not 50 years old. And you've seen Abraham? And Jesus says these words, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. He's claiming that inexhaustible, ever-present, unchangeable, eternal nature of God himself. I'm God, he's saying. That is a cryotic moment in Jesus' life. G. Campbell Morgan, the great Scottish preacher, comments on this, and he says, these words, when Jesus says, I am, are the most impudent blasphemer that ever spoke or the words of God eternal. Those are the two choices that the Jews had. Those are the two choices that God leaves us with here through his word. He's either the biggest blasphemer to ever walk the earth or... He's God incarnate. And the Jews knew it. If you look at verse 59, they picked up stones to kill him as a blasphemer. They knew what he was saying. If you look at verse 20, they tried to seize him after he said it. They knew what he was saying. He was saying, I am God. But there's a second claim of deity here that I want us to notice as well. Jesus says, I am, ego me, name of God. I am the light of the world. Most of us, when we read that, we think of sunlight or he's using some figurative language. But again, that's not what the Jews thought at all. If you've been to the Sunday school, you know that context is king. When you have a question, you look at the context to get the interpretation. And here, as we said two weeks ago, the context here is the Feast of Tabernacles, the great high feast where they celebrated the wilderness wanderings. And they celebrated three great events of the wilderness wanderings in the Feast of Tabernacles. The first was the giving of the manna, right? the manna that came day after day and sustained them for 40 years. In chapter 6, Jesus identifies himself with the manna, doesn't he? I am the bread who has come down from heaven. I am the bread of life. And then he goes on to explain that in the bread of life discourse. The second great event that, that is celebrated at Tabernacles is the water gushing from the rock. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago where they were parched and they were about to die, and God tells Moses to go and strike the rock, and the rock gives life-giving water. And at that moment, in that ceremony, that water ceremony, that's when Jesus stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and streams of living water will flow from him, claiming to be the fulfillment of that. And there's one more significant event that the feast remembers, and that is the pillar of fire that guided them through the wilderness. If you remember back to Exodus, for 40 years, once they came out, 
of Egypt, they were guided by this pillar of fire at night, and it's described as a cloud by day. This is what was remembered and celebrated here at Tabernacles 2. The Talmud, which is just a, a, a collection of rabbinic teachings and writings, the Talmud, records that there were four great pillars erected in the temple area, each 75 feet high, probably 20 or 25 feet higher than our steeple. And on top of each of those were four bowls of oil that they would light at the beginning of Tabernacles. And it was said that that light shone in every courtyard in Jerusalem for eight days. So in the temple during the feast, you have these huge pillars with flame on top of them, shedding light down for eight days, remembering God's presence with them in the wilderness wanderings. So here Jesus comes to the temple the day after the Feast of Tabernacles has ended and he stands up and he says, probably with the backdrop of, of those great pillars, maybe even still smoking, I am the light of the world. I am God. I guided you through. I was there in the wilderness. I am those pillars. What a cratic moment in Jesus' life. Again, claiming to be the deity himself. Claiming to be God. I am the light, the very presence of God with his people. I am God. That's the question that John puts before people over and over and over again. He puts it before the Pharisees, the Jews, those who believe in him, if you remember uh, Last week's sermon. He puts it before them. Believers and non-believers. Jesus is God. That is the question. Even before we get to the resurrection, you have to deal with the question of whether Jesus is God because if, if he is God, then he can do. If he isn't God, then he can't do. You can't believe in a Jesus that saves you from your sin, that absorbed your punishment and your sin on the cross if you don't think he's God. It just doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Could Jesus actually be born of a virgin if he wasn't God? Could Jesus actually do anything about my sin if he's not God? Can Jesus rise from the dead if he wasn't God, and stay alive? Can Jesus actually defeat the curse of death, which I am under, if he's not God? You see, that question links all the rest. You have to deal with this. That's why John's Gospel brings it up again and again and again and again. If the answer is no then Jesus can't do anything about your sin. In a way, the central question that needs to be answered is, is Jesus God? And what Jesus goes on to say is that if the answer is yes, that Jesus is the light, he is the great I am, he is God, then those who follow him will never walk in darkness. That's the second part of this phrase, isn't it? 
Those who follow him will never walk in darkness. That is the claim of, that he is saying to those who follow him. You'll never, you'll never walk in darkness. If you're here and you claim to follow Jesus, you'll never walk in darkness. It doesn't mean much, does it? What does that mean? Okay, great, Blake. I'm never going to walk in darkness. What, do you t- what, what is Jesus saying here? Does that mean that I'll instantly know everything? I'll never walk in darkness, knowledge, darkness? Well, no. 1 Corinthians 13 says that you know, this side of glory, it's really a dim mirror that we're looking through, isn't it? Is Jesus saying that when you follow Jesus, you never sin? You'll never, darkness being sin? Well, I think all we have to do is look at two sets of people and know that that's not true. Look at the people that are represented in the Bible and look at the people that are represented in this room. No. Of course, that does not what that means. Is Jesus saying that your life will become qualitatively better? Ooh, that sounds good. Well, I hope it means that. That's what a lot of, a lot of people put forth as the gospel, isn't it? Your life will be better. Believe in Jesus and your life will instantly come in line. Boy, that's not true. Certainly not from a worldly perspective. You know, if I were to say to you right now, if there's five things in the top five of the things that I want you to remember about how I preach to you, one of them is this, that by giving your life to Christ, by following Jesus Christ, your life might not get qualitatively better. You might still continue to struggle with depression like Charles Haddon Spurgeon did his whole life. Your relationships, your family relationships might not get better. They might, but they might not. You might still have trouble paying your electric bill or your oil bill your whole life. You might still struggle with health issues your whole life. But I do want to tell you about three, at least three, and I had to stop at three because there are many more, at least three benefits of following Jesus Christ and thus you'll never be in darkness. What does that mean, never be in darkness? I want to give you three tangible ways in what what that means, what Jesus is saying. Remember once again that Jesus is saying these words in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles, right? The celebration of God freeing his children from slavery and sending them out into the vast, dark, and dangerous Sinai Desert. He was sending them out into that desert. So what did Jesus do? What did God do? He went with them. 
He went with him. Exodus 13, 21 says, By day the Lord went them, went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel day and night. I first want us to understand that God went with them, and it says the pillar of fire gave them light. God comforts his people with his presence. How do you not never, ever, ever, ever walk in darkness again? Because when you put your faith in Jesus, he never, ever, ever, ever leaves you. He's always with you. Just like that pillar. The pillar of fire gave them light at night. Think of that comfort. Think of how dark it is, you know, when the electricity goes out here and there is no lights, it can get really dark. If there's cloud cover, it gets pitch black. Survivalist Bear Grylls says that having a fire at night is as essential as food and water when trying to survive because it gives a sense of hope, a mental comfort that is critical to keep going. Think of that. They're in the middle of this vast, dangerous and dark desert, and there's this huge pillar of light shining continually. 40 years, 365 days a year. You and I have been freed from slavery, of sin, but we've been cast out into a very dark and dangerous life. It's a vast land out there. How are we to navigate this? When you're alone in the dark, ex- spending extensive periods in the dark, you can lose hope. And hope is really powerful. That's a lesson that the town of Flagstaff, Maine taught us. Maybe not many of you were around when Flagstaff was a town. It's a town about 20 miles north of Rangeley. And in 1950... They built a dam on the Dead River, and that dam flooded Flagstaff. In the months before it was flooded, all improvements or repairs to the whole town stopped. What was the use of painting a house when it's going to get covered up by water? What's the use of repairing anything if it's going to be wiped out? So week by week, the whole town became more and more disheveled, more and more gone to seed, more and more sorrowful. You see, without hope, without a future, you give up. God's presence in the form of a pillar of fire gave the people, God's people, comfort and hope. They were not in this alone. They're not in the Sinai Desert alone. God is with them very tangibly by that fire pillar. And that is what Jesus, the light of the world, is claiming. Just like that fire pillar, he's always with you, people. He's always with you. We forget about that, don't we? 
And I was thinking in my office today, uh, this week as I was putting this together, I was thinking, what about if right out the, this side of the church there was a huge pillar of fire that was there day and night, year after year? How would we feel when we came to church and we, you know, we'd glance over our right shoulder and see God's presence there? It'd be powerful. It would perhaps change our lives week by week. Matthew 28, God tells his people, us, that he's never going to leave you, never going to forsake you. He's always with you, even to the end of the age. And we have to remember that. He's always with you. His spirit is part of you. He's given you his spirit as a guarantee for your future, Ephesians says. Before I leave this point, I want to say something to those who maybe feel acutely alone at times. Perhaps the widowed or unmarried or the sick or the abandoned. I want you to challenge you when you feel most alone, when you feel dragged down into that pit. Bunyan called it a slough of despond. Remember this. Remember you're never alone. Remember when you're in the hospital that Jesus is right there with you, laying next to you. Remember when you wake up at 2.37 in the morning you can't get back to sleep that Jesus is there with you. These are the types of, of truths that God wants us to hold on to so that we don't get sucked down into that slough. Well, we, uh, we realized that the pillar was there to comfort but it was also there to guide. Exodus 13 tells us that the pillar guided them on their way day and night. Think about that. They had no idea how to navigate that wilderness. I went on Google Earth this this week, and I looked at the Sinai wilderness. You know, and I went up to Abu Dhabi and tried to find the Adams, but I didn't find them. But so I scrolled back out. It's vast. You know, even you plop me in the middle of the Sinai wilderness with a GPS and I'd probably die. And here, these people were thrust out of slavery, out of being told what to do and how to do it for 400 years and said, go on your way. No, God went with them and he guided them through this vast, dark, dangerous wilderness. He's saying you're not on your own in this life. You might think you are. And in the discovery notes, I think there are the challenges to those of us who think we want to guide our own life. You know, there's that too. We say, no, God, (laughs) I'm in control. But for those of us who really feel the vastness of this life, God guides you. God is there to guide you. And you have to trust that he'll guide you. During the first evacuation of children and the bombings of London and and during World War II, 
they would pack, in Narnia, if you've read those, you know that this is where this springs from, they would pack children on trains and send them out of London. Parents would stay behind, but the children were sent north into the country to save their lives. Many of them had never been on a train before. Most had never left the city. The parents of a small boy and girl who had just said goodbye to their parents, and their parents left, and they were standing on the platform. And the little girl was afraid because she didn't know where she was going. She had no idea. And her brother, a little older than she, scared as well, put her arm around her in an effort to comfort her, and he said these words. I don't know where we're going either, but the king knows. We have to realize that, guys. You know, maybe we feel like we're wandering in life. What's the purpose? Where's the meaning? Where's the, give me the goal. You know, the scripture only says the light lamp unto your feet. It's only about a step and a half that you see. That's all he gives you. But he says, trust. I'll guide you. Trust me. Maybe you don't know where you're going, but I'm the king. I know where I'm taking you. You have to trust your guide. Many times we don't even realize. We have to remember and trust. Life is vast and dark and dangerous. And we have to follow that pillar. We have to follow it by his word. He gives us his word for, for the very obvious ways to guide us. He gives us his spirit for the, for the not-so-obvious ways. You know, the spirit you know, pushes and, and pricks our conscience, the word says. Oh, don't go that over here. Don't do that. Come with. You have to be sensitive to that. You know, you know how else he guides us? He guides us by circumstances. The circumstances say, no, not that way, this way. And sometimes we don't even realize until we've been guided that we have been guided. Do you, do you know that experience? You know, looking back over your shoulder and saying, wow, that's amazing. I didn't even know he was guiding me. And I want to encourage you, if you've never spent some time looking back over your spiritual shoulder, do it this week. Spend some quiet time reflecting How has God guided my life? If the Spirit truly lives within me, how has God guided my life? As a matter of fact, in the discovery group questions, I think there's a question along those lines. Because the beauty of following Jesus is that he guides us. And many times we don't even realize it. But the pillar of fire didn't just comfort and guide, it also saved and that's the claim of salvation that Jesus makes here in verse 12. I am the light of the world. I am the, I am the fire par- pillar. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. I will comfort and guide and protect, but will have the light of life. See, the pillar didn't just comfort and, and guide. It took them all the way to the promised land, didn't it? That's what we have to remember about Jesus. He's going to do the same for us. Whoever follows me will have the light of life. 
And verse 20 tells us how, doesn't it? It says in verse 20 that he spoke these words while teaching at the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. He spoke these words in an area of the temple where there were seven or 13 huge shofars, horns, that people would put their, their offerings in. It was the area of the temple where people gave their offerings. And it was there that they tried to seize him. But it says his time had not yet come. His time had not yet come. You see, Jesus' ultimate cryotic moment had not come yet. That moment would come six months later when he came back for a final time to Jerusalem. When he came for the final Passover of his life. And there he allowed himself to be seized. Didn't he? Though innocent, he allowed himself to be charged guilty. Though all-powerful God, the I am, the fire pillar, he allowed himself to be tacked up naked, looking weak and helpless on a cross. Though God's son, he allowed himself to be alienated from God. We're not told specifically what Jesus was struggling with in the the garden. But I think one of the the deepest struggles he had was this alienation from God, from his father. His father to turn his back on him. His father that they were together from all eternity past. They were going to be separated. That was the judgment that perhaps Christ was struggling with most of all. That when our sins were heaped on him and the Father turned away for the first time ever. You see, you and I were used to that. You know, that, that, that defines our relationships, doesn't it, to some extent? This kind of give and take, this am I good, am I not good? What about this friend? I thought we were BFFs. No, I guess we're not BFFs. That kind of defines our relationships. But not with Christ and the Father. Tim Keller illustrates it this way. If after the service, one of you come up to me and you say, I never want to see you or talk to you again. I mean, I'll feel bad. Believe me, I will feel bad. But if my wife were to come up to me and say, Blake, I never want to see you or talk to you again, that would devastate me. Because we have a long, deep relationship. So when our sin and our shame And our guilt were heaped upon Jesus at the cross, and he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time, God the Father was saying, I never want to see you again. I don't even want to be around you. That's heavy. Think about that. 
And why did Jesus go through all that? Why was he willing to hear that from his Heavenly Father? For you and for me. For you and me. Jesus was forsaken by the Heavenly Father so that we would never have to be. He was willing to be judged for sin so that we could be set free from sin. He was willing to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's amazing. He was willing to hear, I never, ever want to see you again, Jesus, so that the Heavenly Father would say to us, I never, ever want you out of my sight. The light of the world was willing to be cast into utter darkness so that we might never walk in darkness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and spirit. Apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.